0: Today's scripture reading comes from Hebrews chapter 12, verses 18 through 29. You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire, to darkness gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them because they could not bear what was commanded. Even if an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned, the sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I am trembling with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion, to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all men, to the spirits of righteous men made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See to it that you do not refuse him who speaks. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, how much less will we if we turn away from him who warns us from heaven? At that time his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, once more I will shake not only the earth but also the heavens. The words once more indicate the removing of what can be shaken, that is, created things, so that what cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we are receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. This is the word of God.
1: If you've been with us the past several seasons, we've been looking at the book of Hebrews, and the book of Hebrews is written to people who have been shaken up, The book of Hebrews is written to people who've been shaken up by life to the core. And it answers the question, how do you face the realities of life without melting down, without falling apart, without being shaken? And the author gives us three. This is the climax of the entire book. And the author gives us three reminders as a part of this climax. And we see this in chapter 12. The old way to approach God. The new way to approach God. And how do you get there? The old way. The new way, how do you get there? First, we're going to look at the old way that we approach God. In verses 18 to 21, one of the keys, one of the keys to understanding this passage is to look at verse 18 and verse 22, because there you see uh, the author uses the same verb to show us the two different ways that we as, as created beings approach God. And uh, verse 18, he says, uh, you have not come. Verse 22, he says, but you have come. And that word, to come, is is actually the word approach. It's not a very typical word that's used when we're talking about approaching in the Bible. right? He's not talking about a physical approach. He's talking about the way we view life. You have not viewed life this way. You have not approached God this way. But you have viewed life this way. You have come to view life this way. You have come to approach God this way. In other words, when life is unstable, when life shakes you up, how do you go to God? Verses 18 to 21, the author, he recalls a famous incident in Mount Sinai. If You go all the way back to the Old Testament. And the Israelites had been rescued from Egypt out of slavery. They crossed the Red Sea and they approached Mount Sinai. And that's where the Israelites encountered God. And there God came down. He came down. He actually gave them the Ten Commandments there. The people got close. They saw this giant fire, this radiant fire come down on the mountain. They wanted to get close to God. They wanted to draw near to God. They wanted to experience God. They saw this fire. They saw his brilliance. They saw his warmth. They saw the power of of this presence. They were attracted to the beauty of God. They were attracted to the brilliance of God. But as they came close, they realized that the presence of God was not that cozy experience that they had first anticipated. They were shaken up. The mountain shook as God came near. It said Moses, Moses himself, trembled with fear. Now, the Hebrews writer here says that you have not come to that. You have not come to that experience, this mountain that's burning with fire, the darkness and the gloom and the storm and the trumpet blast and that overwhelming voice threatening you, incredibly overbearing. You couldn't bear it. In other words, when God began to speak to his people, they didn't listen to his voice and say, wow, isn't that a beautiful voice? They feared him. They trembled with fear. They said, I don't want to hear this anymore, no more. They sensed the dread of the presence of God. They sensed the power of the presence of God. It was dangerous to them, so much so that Moses himself trembled. Now, let me experience, because we have to understand. To understand that experience, let me explain this in a couple of illustrations. When you meet somebody you're attracted to, you want to be near that person. You want to be close to that person. Why is that? It's because you want their beauty. You want their brilliance. You want their warmth. Their beauty, being close to their beauty gives you a sense of beauty. Being close to their warmth gives you a sense of warmth. Being close to their brilliance makes you feel more brilliant. It's as if their beauty and their glory passes into you. That's what happens. But here's the problem. it's not. The problem is not, uh, what if that person doesn't want to come near me? The, pers- the, pr- the problem is, what if that person does want to come near me? Because when you're faced with absolute beauty and power and brilliance, and that which is beautiful and powerful and glorious actually comes near to you, it gives you a sense of dread. What if they do come near? It brings out all of your inadequacies. It brings out all of your insecurities. There is a trembling. There is a shaking. There is a nervousness that comes around when that happens. And it's not because um, the person is not brilliant. It's because you're so overwhelmed by their brilliance. You ever come in the presence of greatness, human greatness? You come before somebody that, that you believe, you just respect so greatly, and that person actually wants to get close to you, get, that person approaches you, come, wants to come near to you. What happens? There's a quaking. There's a quaking because the beauty is coming close. Now, I remember a friend in college, um, I heard this story probably a couple times before, I remember a friend uh, in college, went to a, uh, one of the top universities in the city, uh, in the country, uh, in Boston. He was a valedictorian of his high school. And uh, on the first day at university, right, um, he was, uh, the president opened with an address. And basically the president said something like this. Um, And I'm just paraphrasing. He says, everyone here graduated high school at the top of their class. Everybody here. Uh, That means that half of you as freshmen, for the first time in your lives, are going to experience what it feels like to be at the bottom half of the class. Right? In other words, in a class full of valedictorians, somebody has to get a B. Somebody has to get a C, somebody has to get a D, somebody has to fail. And the problem is, we've never experienced that in in our lives. And our entire identity as a result, their entire identity has been built around being at the top. So when you get your first C, what happens? You shake, you quake. Why? Because now you realize there's this inadequacy that sets in. Now all of a sudden, whereas before you thought you were here, you realize you were at the bottom of the half, the bottom half. And so what happens is now you're standing in the presence of people who are so much more brilliant than you and that makes you shake. That makes you insecure. It brings out all of your inadequacies. What happens? That's when the depression, the darkness, the gloom, the dread, the storm comes. The confidence is lost, you see. Even in the presence of peers, look how average we feel. It shakes us. It shatters us. But in the presence of God, Moses, who rescued God's people out of Egypt, in the presence of God, the fiery, consuming presence of God, the glory of God, the brilliance of God, the heat of God, that's why God comes in fire. We call that theophany. In that fiery presence of God, Moses himself says, I'm broken. I'm shattered. That's what he says. In your uh, word of encouragement, there's a passage in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah, great prophet, uh, 65 chapters, uh, sorry, 66 chapters in the book of Isaiah, right? Isaiah stands before and he sees the royal train of God's glory coming with the multitude of angels And Isaiah, he falls to the ground. He says, woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. Why why does he say that? What does that mean? It's because Isaiah was one of the greatest orators of his generation. He was one of the greatest orators of his generation. And so in the presence of true greatness, Isaiah falls to the ground and says, I'm cursed. My lips are failure. My lips are failure. Do you see that? Peter meets Jesus Christ for the first time, what does he say? When he first meets Jesus Christ, they say, wow, what a nice guy. What a pleasant personality. That's not what happens. When Peter first meets Jesus, when he sees, when he comes into contact and encounters who he is before, he falls and he says, depart from me, for I am a sinful man, just like Isaiah. In other words, we all shake. We all quake. We all shatter. We all fall apart. Because God's presence, God's glory presence, his true brilliance, that heat, it consumes us. His beauty is an overpowering beauty. His brilliance is an overwhelming brilliance. His presence is a consuming presence. And our flaws and our finiteness, our vulnerabilities, that's what gets exposed. That's what comes out. The things that you are most in, in deep denial about, about yourself. It's easy to hide your weaknesses. Well, sometimes it's easy to hide your weaknesses in front of other people because maybe, just maybe you'll be able to get away with it. But in the presence of God, everything that you have even been self-deceived about, everything that maybe other people know about you but you don't see yourself because it's been blinded to you, all those things, all the evil that you are capable of, everything that you've ever been in denial about, it gets exposed, you know. And you can't escape it. And you can't help it to fall down. You can't help it to be on your knees. You can't help it to quake. And even if you don't, even if because if you build your life on anything else in the world, anything else that you build in your life in the world, it's going to fall apart. There's this passage right there where we read, right after verse 25, how he says, once again, once more, he will shake, this time the heavens and the earth, he says he's talking about created things, so that what will remain is unshaken. What is he talking about? The author is saying one day there will be a true shaking that will come, and all that you ever clung to apart from Jesus Christ will shake away. Nothing will remain. You see, that's what he's talking about. Eventually, you know. Uh, how do you apply this? If you build, if you build your life on your looks, eventually you're going to age. Eventually, you're going to age entropy is going to take hold in your life. The decay, the physical decay is going to start taking hold in your life. You thought you had a good career. You thought you had a great career. One day you're going to get old and you're going to find that there are people who are a lot younger, a lot better looking, a lot more relationally available, who work a lot harder than you. They're going to leapfrog over you. If you build your life on your wealth, one day there will be a time. There's going to come a time in our country, every 10 years or so, uh, there's some sort of recession that's going to correct your view of how vulnerable you really are. Life is designed to shatter and expose the weakest foundations that you cling to. If you build your life on anything in the world, you're going to end up shaking. You're going to end up quaking. You're going to fall apart. Even Moses, even Moses The reason why the author brings up Moses is because Moses was so revered by the Israelites. Moses' word is law. Moses' word is all wise. And so, but here the author says, even Moses says, I am trembling with fear. But the author says, not you. Not you. You have not come to that. That's the old way. It's amazing. It's remarkable. Well, what's the new way? What's the new way that we approach God? Verse 22, the writer points to a different life. And he starts to list amazing things. I'm going to kind of lay out five or six of them for you today. He lists amazing, over-the-top things that are actually the opposite of what is listed in verse 18 to 22. In other words, a Christian has a new approach to life. A Christian has a new identity. He says, you have come to Mount Zion, to heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Mount Sinai was a wilderness. But you have come to Zion. Zion, the city on a hill, the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. Remember, the Bible begins in a garden and ends in the city of God. It begins in a garden, ends in a city. But in between, what do you have in between? From Genesis, the garden, Revelation, the city, in between those 66 books, what do you have? It's pretty much a summary of our lives. We were created, and from that point on, we just, we're just building our own cities. That's what we're doing. We're just building for ourselves. All of our lives, every week, if you think back to your week and you're honest about yourself, you know that there are moments, at, least, at the least moments in your life where you have been building and trying to get away from God in some ways. You're trying to build apart from God, without God. Every day, we're living a life building our own city, and oftentimes, we keep God out. But the author says here, God is building his own city and he's laying the foundations of that city and you have come to it. He has invited you. He has invited us to dwell in his presence. God has established a new city, Jerusalem. You know what Jerusalem means? Jerusalem in Hebrew means means God's city of peace. But the word Salem, shalom, it's a very, very special word. God's city. Think about all the things that make heaven heavenly for you. If you've never thought about what would make heaven heavenly, just think briefly. What makes heaven beautiful to you? What If you envision what heaven would be like, where lost things are found again, where wrong things are overturned and made right, where everything that has gone broken is fixed, and renewed. Where people don't get older, they actually get younger and yet wiser at the same time. Think about all the things that make heaven beautiful and glorious for you. You put it all together. That is peace, order, justice, righteousness. Here we are. We're pursuing power and we're pursuing wealth. You know why we do that? Because we're looking for peace. We want a peaceful life. That's what we want. That's the dream. And as a result, for centuries and millennia, society has been filled with oppression and disorder and restlessness and injustice. No peace, no shalom. That's the old way. That's the darkness. That's the gloom. That's the storm. But the writer says, you have come to Mount Zion. You have come to a new society. Right now, that's an invitation. That means the church is a pilot. The church is a seed. It's a plant. It's a, it's a foretaste. It's imperfect. It's an imperfect view, but it's a real view of the future city. And he says, you've come to it. You've come to the city of the living God. You are a citizen of that city. The Apostle Paul over and over says, you are, we are citizens of heaven. You know what that means? The author says six, I'm going to say at least six, over the top things here. I'm going to go through them very quickly here. One, this is the new approach, right? One, verse 22, the heavenly Jerusalem. That means... Heavenly Jerusalem, right? City of God, city of peace. That means you can have real peace now. No matter where you are in life, no matter what you're going through right now, you can have peace. You can have the peace of God. No matter how broken or hurt you've been, you can have peace. Number two, the city of the living God. That means that you can have the brilliance of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God passing into you. There are days when you hate yourself. I know there are. There are days when I hate myself. There are days when you hate your body. There are days when you look at yourself, you just hate the way you look. The Hebrews writer is saying, no. That's the old way. You can have the glory of God, the beauty of God passing in. Number three, what that means is it's the city of God. Why does anybody move into a city? Why does anybody? Even if you live in the suburbs, in the Philadelphia we have a very, very diverse uh, and probably one of the most well-developed suburban systems in the country. And yet they all have a way of pointing into the city. We rely on the city for its greatness. We embrace it. That's why it's one of our core values here at Metro. We embrace the city. And, and uh, why, why, what does it mean to live in the city? That means one day you're going to be living and working in a city. The reason why God's building a city is because we're all going to be working there. We're all going to have jobs. It may not be the same types of jobs that we have here on earth, but we're going to be building together. You're going to have gifts in heaven. You're going to have purpose. You're going to accomplish things. You're going to serve, and it's going to be fulfilling And it's going to be glorious. Yes, right now, it's imperfect. Right now, in the church, it's imperfect. And you're just getting a taste of what real joy is like. You're just getting a taste of what real peace is like. You're just getting a taste of what meaning in life is like. But one day, it will come and just be consumed. It will be consummated in full. Blessed assurance, Jesus is mine. Oh, what a foretaste of glory divine. You're going to have meaning. You're going to have purpose, real meaning, real purpose. Four, what that means is you can have real joy. The writer here, he says, You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. What is that? Any time in the Bible you see the presence of angels like that, thousands and thousands, you know, you see it in Genesis Jacob, he's penniless. He's friendless. He has nobody around him. He doesn't even have a pillow to to sleep on. He's got a rock for a pillow. That means you have nothing. He doesn't even have a satchel, nothing to lay his head on, right? He's alone. He's, He's just in complete darkness, and yet he sees angels. He sees the royal train of God. Even in the deepest suffering, what that means is that Whenever you see the presence of angels, that's God's, the royal train of God's presence is there. Why do we have joy? Because there's intimacy. Even in Genesis, where Jacob is alone and in darkness, God comes to him. He doesn't go to God. God comes to him. He wasn't even looking for God. He wasn't seeking God, looking for God. He was actually running from God in a way. God comes to him and blesses him, promises him. There's intimacy there. When Adam and Eve... Way in the book of Genesis, when Adam and Eve, they were, they were in the garden of Eden. They were cast out of the garden because of their sin. What did they see? There was an angel standing in front of the garden. Why was that? It's because they were cast out. They couldn't enter back in. The angel, the glory presence of God, they were not allowed back in. Do you see that? That's the brokenness of sin. That's why, again, in your word of encouragement, Isaiah chapter 6, he sees the cherubim. He sees the angels. They're above the throne of God. It's God's royal train of glory the presence of god and he falls down and he says woe is me there's a shaking isaiah and moses they were experiencing the mount sinai experience that's the old life that traumatic presence of god but the author says you have come to a place of infinite joy thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly what are they doing when you have thousands and thousands of angels in joyful assembly what are they doing they're serving God they're centering their life around God they're praising God they're adoring God they're gazing on the beauty of God on the glory of God they're glorifying God they're doing what they were designed to do one day with the peace with the presence with the brilliance of God in you with the purpose and the meaning of With the joy. You know why there's joy? Because there's intimacy and there's intimacy. What are you doing? You are doing exactly what you were designed to do. You're going to be built for that. You know, we're built for worship. We're built for praise. When you watch a movie that you really like, when you watch a movie that you really like, you can never fully enjoy it on your own unless you do what? You share it. You just have to share it with somebody else. You have to watch it. You just have to praise it. You can't enjoy it unless you glorify. Because we're built that way. Mankind is designed and built to worship. We're built to glorify. We're built to praise. And it has to be shared. Why do you think we gather together in assembly to worship God? God himself is community. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. We're built as a result. When he said, let us make them in our image, we're built in assembly. Nothing is more fulfilling in praise and glory than doing it in fellowship. You know what real fellowship is then? Think about this. When you love somebody, when you love somebody, it's never complete to just love them by yourself. The love actually is not complete. It's not enough to just give and give and give and give. It's never going to be complete when you do it that way. It needs to be reciprocated. It needs to be shared. Love is designed to be shared the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. They understood that. They knew that. They knew the absolute, infinite, cosmic joy of intimacy and relationship because God is the triune God. By nature, he is a fellowship. And so God knows that love is designed to be shared. And so when he created us, he didn't create us out of insecurity because he was lonely. He was fully and wholly complete. He created us because love is designed to be shared. He said... Let us make man in our image. What he's saying is, let's widen the circle. Let's open it up. That's what he's saying. And so, he really didn't create us because he needed us. He created us to spread his love. To spread the glory of fellowship. Not to get it, but to share it. That's what we're built for. Nothing else is going to satisfy you. Why do you gather? Why do you get together with others? Nothing else is going to satisfy you. You were built to gather, and in so, in just living life, in your doing, in your being, glorifying God in his presence. All creation knows this. Psalm 19, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of your hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. What are they pouring forth speech about? Night after day, night, they, uh, they pour forth knowledge. What are they doing? What are they pouring forth about? What are they speaking about? What are they praising about? God's glory. Praising God, adoring God. The heavens declare what? The glory of God. All creation praises God. Creation is designed to look away from itself and reflect and praise the glory of God. The rest of the universe understands joyful assembly. All the universe understands except for us. You know why? Because in the Garden, we chose to believe in a lie. In the Garden of Eden, we chose to believe in a lie. You know what that lie was? That lie is today? That if I live for God's glory, that if I live for God's will, instead of my own will and my own glory, I will never be happy. That's the lie. When Satan was tempting Eve, He wasn't just trying to get her to eat some fruit. That's what we learn as children, right? He was, Eve looked at the fruit and said, but it's pleasing to the eye. It looks good. Why would God hold something good back from me? And Satan said, are you sure God is for you? Are you sure? That's really what was happening there. Are you sure God intends your happiness? Are you sure about that? we're still warring with God. We're still fighting with God for control, and we're miserable as a result. That's what the Hebrews author says. The fifth thing, he says, you have come to a new city. He says, you have come to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. You know what that means? In ancient times, the firstborn... They received all the wealth, all the power, all the decision-making power. In a sense, the firstborn received the inheritance, and as a result, the firstborn got all the glory. Got all the glory. That means the firstborn got the status and the love and the power and the wealth. He just got it. He didn't do anything to earn it. He just happened to have been born first, and so he receives it. It's sheer grace. He didn't have to work to prove himself. Friends. What is he saying? You have come to the church of the firstborn. Everybody in heaven is a firstborn, in a sense. That's what he's saying. This is the end of insecurities. This is the end of jealousy. This is the end of you comparing yourself to somebody else that you think you're inferior to. This is the end of you comparing yourself to somebody that you think you're superior to, you see. This is the end of you constantly working to prove yourself that means this is the end of fatigue and that's why shalom also means rest you see that it's the end of working for status the end of working for wealth the end of working for power the text says you have come to the church of the firstborn the people of the firstborn the assembly of the firstborn in the church in heaven that everyone is a firstborn son that means you have the wealth you have the power you have the love of god god is doting on you You have the glory of God passing into you. That inheritance of Christ is yours. You have a new status. You have a new identity. That means you can be the last child from a terrible family, uneducated, physically, I don't know, uh, something's disabled you in some way, and you have low status, no earthly claim to the future, no earthly claim because you are poor in poverty, and on top of that, you are morally outcast, and yet God can still see you absolutely with certainty as a firstborn. That's what that means. You don't have to prove yourself anymore. You know, apart from this, friends, apart from this, there is no other way of knowing who you really are. You want to know why? Because unless the gospel goes deep, I'm talking deep. You got you got the gospel has to go to places that you don't want it to go to. It's got to go deep. Unless it does that, your self-esteem is really a product of your effort to get people to think about you in a certain way and a product of that plus what everybody else around you says about you. And that's really hard. That's really tough. Because what people say about you is really a mixture of true things and false things and confusing things and conflicting things. And and on top of that, it's always changing. So who are you really? Who are you really? You don't really ever know who you really are. Some of you are still living out a guilty verdict that people have passed on to you in judgment years ago and you can't escape it. You know what that means? You're still living out the gloom. You're still living out the darkness and gloom and storm. Some of you, you're you're the opposite. You're very well put together and you're popular and you're good-looking and you're wealthy and you're intelligent and your self-esteem is really something that you've built over the years. You've built your own city quite well. It's been built over years past, and yet it's never going to end. You're going to have to keep building, and you're tired. And if you're not tired yet, you're going to get tired. It never ends. You know what? You're facing the gloom and the darkness and the storm. Some of you are living out wounds. Wounds suffered because you have a very poor self-image, and it comes from just a history of abuses and criticisms, um, self-judgment, self-loathing. Hebrews 12 says this, verse 23. You have come to God, and who is God? He is the judge of all men. All men in the spirits of righteous men who have earned perfection, that's not what it says here, and the spirits of righteous men who've been made perfect. That's the sixth thing. That's the last thing we're going to talk about. This is the end of shame. This is the end of guilt. This is the end of regret. Verse 24. You have come to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. There was an old. This is new. You have come to Jesus, the source, the broker, the doler, the person who gave, the mediator of a new covenant. Verse 28, and you have received a kingdom that cannot be shaken. Before, Moses was shaken even Moses, no one could stand. If Moses couldn't stand, no one could stand. Moses was shaken. He was terrified. He was broken up. Before, there was a quaking. There was a darkness. There was a gloom. There was a storm. Now, he says, you are unshakable. This is a life of certainty and peace and beauty and purpose and joy and inheritance without shame, without regret. You see that? I'm going to say that one more time because that sums up all six things, right? This is a life of certainty and peace and beauty and purpose and joy because there's intimacy and there's inheritance without shame, without regret, without sin. That's what you get. That's a new way to approach God. If you have a life like that, you have an unshakable life. If you know you have a life like that, you you know you are unshakable. No matter you can endure a lot of things on earth. Unshakable life. How do you get it? How do you come to it? Verse twenty three you have come to the judge of all men. Here's a question for you. How could the judge of the earth become the source of an unshakable life? Because if you think about when you hear the word judge, you tremble. If you stand before a judge, you tremble, you shake. So how could coming to the judge of all men become the source of an unshakable life? And here's the answer. Think about this. Verses 18 to 21, the mountain's shaking because of God's presence. Moses is trembling. Why? Judgment. Even Moses, there's judgment because of sin. Because of our sin, we can't stand in the presence of God. The presence of God, the beauty, the brilliance, the glory, the warmth, it passes in and it consumes us. So how do you stand? Verse 24, you've come to Jesus. He stands as mediator between you and God, the mediator of this new covenant. On the cross, what do you see? There's a darkness. On the cross, there's a gloom. On the cross, there's a storm. And Jesus cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Matthew 27, in Matthew chapter 27, it says this, when he cried out and gave up his spirit, at that moment, the curtain temple torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. In other words, when Jesus was on the cross, there was a darkness. It actually said the skies grew dark. There was a gloom. There was a storm. A storm had come in. And there was an earthquake. And everything shook. Tombs opened up. The rocks split. What do you see? Mount Sinai has again come. Mount Sinai all over again. Except Jesus Christ is on the cross. And he is receiving the shaking that we deserve. And when he says, I am forsaken, what he's saying is this. This is the real shaking. This is the real quaking. This is the ultimate trembling because the glory of God has not come into my presence. It has departed from me and now I'm experiencing the ultimate loneliness, the ultimate trembling. You know what the ultimate fear is? Being completely separated from God. There you have the ultimate judgment. And so on the cross, Jesus Christ, the wrath of God is just pouring out on him just pouring out on Jesus. And God has turned his face from him and had forsaken him. And there is darkness and gloom and storm and he's fallen apart. Moses, he was terrified at just the idea of God's presence and judgment. Jesus Christ experiences the total, all-consuming wrath of God. He was judged and he was consumed. Every other religion teaches us this. Here are the standards, here are your laws, live up to them. Or there's judgment. And, you know, you're not going to be convicted, right? You're not going to be brought before some sort of tribunal. But you feel guilty. When you've done something wrong, when you you may have your own standards, and when you don't live up to them, there's judgment. You feel it. You get depressed, you get sad, there's despondency, there's a shaking. There's a quaking. Every other religion, every other worldview has standards and laws that we have to live up to. Otherwise, there's judgment. And so we're desperate to try because if we succeed, even for a moment, we feel good. We feel good about ourselves. There's a, there's a brilliance. There's a power. You see that? But if you fail, there's darkness. There's gloom. There's storm. There's a shaking. And that is just a taste of the real judgment. But here, what does this tell you? You've come to the judge of all men. And he came down not to pour out his judgment, but what? To bear all that judgment on himself. And so the ultimate shaker was ultimately shaken. You know what it means to shake, to fall apart? When you're shaking something, you're dismantling it. If you shake something violently enough, it breaks down to its bare organic parts. Right, the whole principle in chemistry is that if there is just enough vibration strong enough vibration the very molecules and atoms fall apart they dismantle what do we call that? disintegration so on the cross Jesus Christ when he says that the glory of God has departed from me he's saying I have disintegrated there was a violent disintegration he was shaken Jesus Christ was shaken why? so you would be unshakable. Jesus Christ was torn apart. That meant that God's heart was torn apart. He lost his son, and the son lost his father. You see that? The Trinity is torn apart. God suffered. Jesus Christ suffered. Friends, if you're suffering, and Hebrews is written to sufferers, nobody understands loss more than God. Nobody understands betrayal more than God. Nobody understands injustice more than God. Do you understand that? It's not to justify or to tell you to buck up. That's religion. Religion tells you. So deal with it. That's not what God is saying here. God is saying, I know. I know. And I'm there. I know. And I suffered for you. You see that? Jesus Christ was torn apart so that the curtain temple was torn from top to bottom. If it was torn from bottom to top, that meant that we took one end and we pulled it apart so that we can, what is a curtain? It gives you access. It was a very thick curtain that veiled the presence of God from the people in the temple. That temple curtain was torn apart. Why? So we could have access. It's as if God took it from the top upon seeing what Christ has done and he tore it ripped it apart so that we would have access. That presence of God, what you were built for, what you are looking for in your love life, what do you think you're looking for when you want access in your love life? When you're pining for access? What do you think you're looking for in your work, the success and the accomplishments of your work? What do you think you're looking for in every vacation you've ever been on? What kind of rest do you think you're looking for? Every great music, every great piece of music you've ever heard that seems so surreal, every movie that you've ever seen that points to some redemptive uh, reality, every great book that you've ever read, you will never find them fully in those things. Those things are all just signposts pointing to what? They're just mere shadows, just paling in comparison to the real thing, the presence of God, the glory of God, the beauty of God. Jesus Christ lost the presence He was forsaken so that we would have his presence. Jesus Christ was shaken up so that we would become unshakable because of what he has done by grace. It's not because we earned it. It's not because we earned it. That's access. No fear in life. No fear in death. This is the power of of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. You have come to this. Have you come to this? Have you come to this? Have you come to this? Let's pray.